Okay, welcome back to Fundamentals of the Faith. Uh, remember last week we talked about the person of Christ, and today, tonight we're going to talk about the works of Christ, or the works of Christ, Jesus. So, um, before we start, let's open in a word of prayer, okay? Father, we again thank you for uh, being able to gather in your house tonight. We thank you, Father, for each one who's here. Give us attentive hearts, Father. Give, uh, help me to, to recall all the things that have been studied this week to be able to share uh, what it is that you came here to do. And just bless our time together, Father, that uh, you might be glorified in every word that's spoken, and we'll praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and we want to, someone read verses 10, 11, and 12, if you would, please. Anyone. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Okay. We're going to look at that tonight. We're going to start off by asking just a couple questions, kind of rhetorical questions. Don't really have to answer those. But why did Christ have to die? The other half of that question was, couldn't he have saved the world uh, without dying? Good question, isn't it? One of those they have to ponder for a while to, uh, to come up with an answer. How do I know that all of my sins were paid for on the cross? Those are questions that we're going to try to answer tonight as we look through this. Now, we're going to take a look, first of all, at Romans 3, 10 through 12. We'll take a look at it a little, a little closer than just reading it. So, we start out with the condition of man. And the condition of man, before he comes to Christ, is what? Hint, it's up there. <laughs> He's totally depraved. What's it mean to be totally depraved? what you are. You are a sinner. You're, you're sold to sin. You are actually, the scripture tells us, we are a slave to sin. We're sold under sin to Satan, and he controls us. How did we get there? Pardon? You're born that way. You're born that way. We, that's, we can thank Adam for that. We inherited it from him. He, uh, he, he brought sin into the world, and uh, it's just been passed on to us. I was telling a lady we were interviewing for membership this morning, and she said she was 10 when she, uh, when she came to know the Lord. And I had encouraged her, you know, whenever you're given your testimony, you should always start with sin. Because sin is, the whole, is what separates us from God. It doesn't matter what your environment is. doesn't matter who your parents are. doesn't matter who your friends were. doesn't matter who's in government. None of those things separated you from God. The only thing that separates you from God is your sin. And, when you ha- and until you deal with your sin, then you're not going to come to Christ. You're not going to have salvation. So I told her, I said, it doesn't matter if you're 10, if you're 100, if you're 10 seconds. It doesn't matter. It's sin is the problem. Sin, you were born with that sin nature, and sin is the problem. So we'll start out with saying there's none, there's uh, no one is right before God. We know that. That's, what, that's a part of the depravity. 
God's standard is perfection. Somebody read Matthew 5, 48. Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Who in here is perfect? Anybody? It was a command. That's what he gave us. It was a command there. We are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. We will be one day. We're working towards it day after day. When do we become perfect? In heaven. When we either die or he raptures us and takes us there, sin is left behind. It will be in a perfect environment. We will be perfect. He goes on to say that all man's deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. I'll read this for you. It's Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us has become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of our righteousness as is filthy rags. So it doesn't matter how good a person you think you are. God knows what you are. And he says that you're, even all the good deeds that you do at his side are just as filthy rags. It doesn't matter what we did in working our way towards whatever it was we thought we were working our way towards. For those who think they can work their way to salvation or work their way into heaven, it's not going to happen because they can never do enough good to make it into God's presence. We'll go on. Say, none who understands, unredeemed man has no spiritual capacity to understand God. Why do you think that is? Why why can't man understand? What prevents it? Any idea? What are we spiritually? Dead. dead. What do dead people do? Not much. <laughs> Not much. The only thing they can really do if you don't attend to them, smell, rock. Yep, that's about it. You can tickle them, you can slap them, you can do whatever you want to do, and you're not going to get a response. Nothing's going to happen. And the unredeemed man, because he's dead in his sins, cannot understand the things of God. He has to be enlightened by the spirit at the time of salvation. Men are darkened in their understandings. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Somebody read that for us. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, because their hearts are hard, they're ignorant. They, they have no capacity to understand who God is. There is none who understands, and their, their understanding has been darkened, and they're hurling headlong into destruction. No getting around it. There's none who seeks after God. Men do not seek God because of their hard hearts. Our hearts are hardened against God. It goes back to what he's what we said in the first. He said in the first part of that that uh, 
know what is right before God. The hearts are hard. Um, God has to soften that heart in order for salvation to take place. Men only seek God in response to God seeking them. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes to God unless God calls them to come to him. Uh, it goes back to where there's none who seeks after him. That's what he's saying here. We have to, we only come to God because God calls us to come to him. Um, men only seek God in response to God seeking them. That's what we just, that's what we just read. Okay, that he says, all have turned aside. Who have men turned aside from? Levi, from God. They've turned aside from God. They have no desire for him. And you find out if, you're, if you spend much time in the world, if you're in a secular job, I was for years and years, and there's, there's no real desire on the part of most people to have anything to do with spiritual things. They don't. And it's not until God draws them. Their hearts are hard and towards it, and they aren't seeking after him. They're only seeking after what? But before you came to Christ, what did you seek after? Your own desires. desires. Pleasures. Sin. Sin has its pleasure for a season. That's what Scripture tells us. And we thought we enjoyed the sin. Sometimes even after we're Christians, we think we're going to enjoy the sin. But it doesn't work that way. And the problem with enjoying sin is you never get enough of it. There's always got to be a little bit more. It's kind of that... Uh, you know, we have this level, and, well, that meets the need for right now, but i got to go to another level. It's just got to always be something more, kind of what the people with addictions can't get enough. All have turned aside. Uh, we've said that. He's turned aside from God. Unrighteous men do not seek God and do not understand spiritual things. They will turn aside and go after their own ways apart from God. This is Isaiah 53, 6. It says in 53.6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. Unrighteous men do not seek after God, but God will seek after them. They've fallen away. They become useless. What does it mean to be useless? Not helpful? That's good. Doesn't <laughs> you have no purpose. No purpose. It's, it's kind of like, I was thinking about this this afternoon when I was reading through this. It's kind of like if you have a, uh, a D-sized battery that's gone dead. What do you do with it? I thought, well, it's not totally useless. You could use it for a paperweight. That would be about its only purpose after it's lost its power is to be a paperweight. But other than that, it's totally useless. It's to be thrown in the trash heap because there's nothing, there's no value to it. There's nothing you can do with it. You can't recharge it. You can't do anything with it. You can't recycle it. It's just trash. It's useless. It's worthless. Basically, that's where we were before it was saved. Basically, worthless, useless, with no... uh, 
no value as far as the world is concerned. Spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1, actually says, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And we talked about that before. What does a dead person do? Nothing. He can't do anything. He can't respond. He can't do anything. He is dead. And we are spiritually dead. We have no ability whatsoever to please God. We have no ability to know God, to understand his scriptures, because we were spiritually dead. Then he says, none who does good. And then he goes on with the worthless, the worthless, uh, worthless for any good deeds. Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deeds. That was kind of the, uh, the problem with the Pharisees. They had a lot of religion, but they didn't have any relationship with God. And the things that they did weren't helpful. Um, they were worthless in their good deeds. They thought their good deeds were going to get them right with God, and it wasn't working. Uh, they were basically, uh, they were lost, and they didn't realize it. Okay, what are the consequences of man's condition? I put on here a, uh, a definition for sin, and I liked it. I thought it was a good one. The definition of sin is anything contrary to God in thought, in word, or in deed. In thought, in word, in deed. Pretty much covers everything in our life, doesn't it? And that really dovetails into what uh, Pastor Clay was bringing to us this morning in the message about grumbling. Because where did grumbling start? It starts in the heart. It was, it was a heart issue, and the heart issue caused them to grumble, and sometimes even the grumbling can cause us to do something that's, uh, that's going to be on the, uh, on the surface. Um, we all have a tendency, I think, to grumble at times. There's something that we just... I, t I told my wife when we were talking about this this afternoon, I said, we've gotten better, but I said, you grumble. She said, I do. I said, yes. I said, every time you open your tablet or take out your phone, what is wrong with this stupid phone? It's not what I asked it to do. It's not what I punched it to do. It's not doing what I told it to do. Is that grumbling? It's telling the truth, maybe, but we have to be careful because even mundane things like that can cause us to do things we shouldn't do. And if we let ourselves get away with that, then there's going to be something else that's going to come along, and we aren't going to like that, and we'll grumble about that as well. Uh, I thought Clay did an excellent job this morning. It was, it was a powerful message, and it hit everybody out there, I'm sure. So he says that, uh, that sin is in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. So in our thoughts, Matthew 5.28. Somebody read Matthew 5.28. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That could be scary, isn't it? Especially in the society that we live in. 
And we have to be careful about uh, guarding our eyes, guiding the, th- guarding the things we look at, the, the stuff that's fed into us uh, through the media. The so- if you're on social media, it's all over. It's, it's constantly, you may, not, you may not be friends with that thing, but it comes up. It pops up there. You're not looking for it, but boom, it's there. And you have to be careful. You have to, uh, you have to guard your heart. You have to guard your eyes. First uh, John tells us that the lust of the it, the the, uh, the love of the world is what? It's the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We have to be careful. David said, "Ask God to guard his eyes. He didn't want to look at anything that was going to cause him to be defiled." So that's what we really need to do with our lives. We need to be guarding our eyes. We need to guard the content that comes around that causes us even to look at the things we shouldn't be looking at with evil desires because we're human, unfortunately, and those things can attract. In our word or speech, Colossians 3.8 says, um, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Hmm. It's quite a list, isn't it? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, grumbling and complaining, backbiting, all things that ought not to be there, uh, all sins that we are all at different times guilty of. Then he said, indeed, and we don't often think about this, but uh, we list there two of them, sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission is breaking God's law. First uh, John 3, 4 says that everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, what, what lawlessness is John talking about? Was he talking about the Constitution of the State of Virginia? No. <laughs> what was he talking about, lawlessness? What, what law would we be violating there? God's law. The law that God laid down for all of us. It's not that we live under the law. He says we're not under law, but we're under grace. But the law, Paul said, was there to show him how bad sin really was, how bad his sin really was, how horribly a sinner he really was. And the purpose of the law was to point that out. And it was something they were to live by. And uh, so when we violate the things we know that are in the law, things that we know are in Scripture, the commands of Scripture that tell us don't do this, and you go ahead and do it anyway, that's a sin of commission. The sins of omission is not doing what you know is right. James 4.17. Now James 4.17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is okay. No? It is what? It is sin. When you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, even though it's not necessarily spelled out, it's sin. What would be an example of a sin of omission? Something you know is the right thing to do and you didn't do it. 
Any idea? I would say to um, apologize to someone. You know you should be doing it. You know you should be apologizing and completely, or ask forgiveness, should I say. Sure, that's a great one. You've offended somebody. You, you, there's a lot of time when we'll say something and we know we have offended somebody. You can just tell by the look on their face. And you just turn around and walk away. Not good. What would be another example? It could be something as simple as you see a need and you don't meet it. Uh, scripture talks about that. You know, tell your brother, well, you go and be warm and you know, he's hungry. You, well, you go be warm and fed and maybe you'll find some food someplace. When you have the ability to help him and you don't do it, okay? When you see somebody is in need and you don't meet a need, those are the things we have to be careful of. What does it mean to be enslaved to sin? You can't control your impulses. Can't control your impulses? How much do we understand about being a slave? How many rights did a slave have? Zero. Had no right whatsoever. Uh, especially in the time that Scripture was being written, slavery in, in, uh, in the Roman Empire was very common, to say the least. It was a great part of their economy. And people were bought and sold all the time. And a slave owner actually had the right, he could beat the slave, he could actually, if he wanted to, put him to death. And they, they had no recourse. They, they were a slave. And they only did what they were told to do. They had no freedom. And when we are enslaved to sin, we no longer have freedom. We're slaves to that sin. We're slaves to the one who has purchased us, which was Satan. Slavery is not a, is not a pleasant thing. It's not a good thing. We don't like to talk about it. It's not politically correct to talk about it in today's society because of the history of our country and actually the history of the world. You just go back to our his, human history period. There's been slavery owners and slaves forever. And scripture says that we were enslaved to sin. And the only way that that slavery is going to be broken is if someone pays the price for it, if someone purchases us. That was the whole purpose in what Christ was here to do, was to purchase us out of the slave market and set us free. We said in the beginning that man is totally deprived and has total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're void of any good qualities or that are pleasing to man or that every person is as bad as he or she could be. However, it does, does mean that every part of man is tainted by sin. That includes his motives, his actions, and his desires. Men are slaves to sin, totally separated from God, a condition which is impossible 
to please God. We can't please him as long as we are sold under sin. So we're going to look at the works of Christ. We're going to look at the need for a blood sacrifice, at Christ's humiliation, the crucifixion and the events around the crucifixion, and the judgment of God at the cross. So first of all, the need for a blood sacrifice. Why did Jesus have to die? Any idea? The penalty for sin is death. It was required. If if you were to go back in to the Old Testament, in my daily readings, I've been in the book of Leviticus, and in the book of Leviticus, it talks about the sacrifices. They have just completed the tabernacle, and they put it up. Aaron and his sons have been assigned as priests, and in the first five chapters, he lays out all the different sacrifices that were to be made. All of them required somebody, something to die. The animal couldn't just be stabbed and let a little blood come out and then it was okay, it's done. No, the animal had to be slain, it had to be divided in a certain way, certain parts of it put on the altar, everything was laid out on what was supposed to be happening. So it required death in order to have atonement for the sin. Some animal had to die to atone for Aaron's sins, and then Aaron would kill an animal on behalf of a person, and he would lay their hands on one of the, uh, the sacrifices as a part of the atoning process, and the animal was slain and the blood was sprinkled. It had to die. I've heard people say that they didn't like Christianity because it's a bloody religion. That wasn't the British expression of it. It was literal bloody, bloody, a bloody religion because it all it involved blood and sacrifices. And the same was true in the New Testament. Jesus had to die. He had to shed his blood. When this, when Scripture talks about Christ shedding his blood, it wasn't just the blood; it was his dying. That was another, another word or euphemism for dying was the shedding of his blood. If it was just blood, then Jesus could have pricked his finger, daubed it on there, and it should have been done, right? That would have been blood. But he had to die. He had to, uh, he had to shed his blood in order to, uh, to pay the price that God had required. Um, in order for Christ to do that, what had to happen? We talked about this some last week with the, uh, the person of Christ. Why did, why did Jesus have to become a man? Couldn't he have stayed God? Pardon? Okay, he had to be tempted. Why else would, what else did he have to do? To be, why would he have to be a man? couldn't die unless he was a man but he also had to experience everything that you and I experience temptation pain, hunger weakness sorrow all of the things all the emotions all of the the things that we experience 
he experienced while he was here. So that he could be the sacrifice for our sin because he had to be fully man to be able to experience that. But he also had to be fully God in order to be perfect, to be the perfect sacrifice that was required for sin. When you go back to the book of Leviticus, every time there was an animal brought, it had to be without spot and without blemish. It had to be a perfect animal. It couldn't be lame, couldn't have one leg shorter than another, it couldn't have blemishes on its skin, it couldn't have, it had to be visually perfect. And Jesus, in order to pay the price for our sin, had to be perfect. And he was the perfect God man because he was tempted in all ways as we are. Uh, Satan took him into the wilderness for 40 days and tempted him. And the, the Gospels list some of those temptations, yet he resisted in all of them and remained perfect. So we needed to have a blood sacrifice. Forgiveness requires the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says... And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So in order for him to complete the work that God had given him, his blood had to be shed. God had to set the requirement that the shedding of blood is required for atonement to sin. I actually put Leviticus 17.11 on there. Excuse me. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement for our sins. Our sins will not, cannot be paid for unless the blood of Christ is applied to them. Christ's humiliation. Last week we talked a little bit about the kenosis or the emptying. Uh, to be the perfect sacrifice for sin and the mediator between God and man, Jesus had to be both God and sinless man. Christ had to set aside his glory and independent authority and take on the form of a bondservant being despised and forsaken of men. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's hard to comprehend. It's hard for me to grasp, as we would say, wrap our arms around that and understand how he left the glories of heaven, the presence of the Father, and came here to become a man, to live amongst us, and to give up all of that, to suffer what he suffered, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to be eventually crucified be forsaken of men, is what he said there, being despised and forsaken of men. You know, he, he came to his own people. He came to the Jews. And if anybody should have known that it was him, it should have been them. How would they have known that it was, should have been him? They had what? They had the scriptures. They had the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures speak starting in Genesis 3, starts talking about the, the one that was going to come as Messiah, the one that was going to come and crush Satan's head. And you go all the way through, Psalm 53, or, uh, Isaiah 53. If you've not read it, you should, because it's a, it's a complete description of Christ and what his life was going to be like and all that was going to happen to him. 
It was all in the Old Testament, and the uh, Jewish leaders were supposed to be the teachers of the law, the teachers of the scriptures, the interpreters of it, and yet when he came, they didn't recognize him. They were completely blinded to it. Let's look at the crucifixion. The agony before his crucifixion. Um, the passage is listed there, Luke 22. We aren't going to, well, we, someone read Luke 40, 22, 41 through 44. Quickly. Luke, Luke 22, 41 through 44. drawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying father if it is your will take this cup away from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground that's agony it's, it's a scientific fact, I've read that before, that you can be under such stress that the capillaries under the skin actually burst with the stress of what you're going through and your sweat would, would have blood in it. You begin to bleed out your pores. Now, I bleed out of my pores, but it's all water. Uh, I've, I've never been under that kind of stress. I, I've worked, worked in the heat already and, and I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a sweater. Not a sweater like you put on and wear, but I'm a sweater like water sweat. <laughs> Is that right, Levi? And so, yeah, I can bleed out my pores, but I never bled blood out of my pores because of great stress that I was under. But Christ did. And he did that because of the agony of knowing what he was facing. When you, when you think about what he was facing, and yet he voluntarily did it, I realize it's in obedience to his father. It's what the father wanted for him. And even in that passage, he said, if it be your, you know, if possible, let this cup pass away from me. I, I don't have to drink it, but other than, nonetheless, let it be your will that's done, Father, not mine. And he willingly went there to the cross, knowing what it was going to happen. Uh, he was arrested. They brought, the, they brought probably 600 soldiers with them, they said, and to arrest him on false charges and take him for a trial. And this trial then was before, first in the Sanhedrin, and it's in the middle of the night. And I just read this recently, that it was actually against the, I want to say the rules of the Sanhedrin to conduct trials at night. Had to be done in the daytime. But they were willing to violate even their own rules to carry out their plans, and they have a mock trial, and then they take him to Pilate, and uh, we know what the rest of it was. So he goes before Pilate, then he's scourged, he's beaten, and that, that scourging many times caused death for the person. Uh, I've read, uh, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, he gives you a description of what that flogging is like, that it would take the take the individual and they extended their arms up above their heads with straps and pulled them up tight and then with with the the whip I guess is what you would call it the scourge had little pieces of metal and bone in the ends of the leather straps and as they came down across they said a, a 
a trained soldier could strip all the flesh off a man's back without killing him and expose even his kidneys and his liver. And that was excruciating. And that's, that's, the, that's the scourging that Jesus faced on our behalf. And then his crucifixion, being nailed on the cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Not because he had to, because he voluntarily did it, because it was a plan that God had from the beginning. It said he was crucified before the foundation of the world was put in place. God had the plan in place. You realize your sin didn't catch God by surprise. And that should be almost be a comfort to us, because that means God doesn't, there's nothing that happens in your life that God is caught by surprise by. He knows what's going on in your life, and he's concerned, and uh, he's there to help. And then his last word, someone uh, read for us quick, John nineteen twenty six through 30. Anybody? John nineteen twenty six. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on the hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's done. It's completed. He did everything that was required to purchase our salvation and he gave up his spirit he voluntarily gave up his spirit and he died it's interesting the things that took place after that the Jews still didn't believe the Pharisees and those who were watching and, and mocking him didn't believe and yet the things that included were supernatural darkness, there was earthquakes, there was the tearing of the veil in the temple that exposed the Holy of Holies, and yet they wouldn't believe. They failed to believe, refused to believe. The judgment of God at the cross. Christ bore our sins because sin on, be, became sin on our behalf. In... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then in, um, let's see, yeah, that's the one I wanted. Okay, so God made him to become sin on our behalf so that he could pay the price for that sin. Our iniquities fell upon Christ. Isaiah 53.6, again, we had 
uh, used that before. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He took upon himself all of our sin. He didn't sin, but he took our sin upon him so that he could pay the price for it and that we could go free. Christ was forsaken by the Father, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Um, did somebody read that? I don't have that on my list. I don't know how I missed that one. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken?" Why did God forsake him? He had all the sin in the world. And God can't look at what? He can't look at sin. So, Jesus, for those moments that he was on the cross, and it was moments in comparison to eternity, he was separated from the Father. First time ever that he was not communed with the Father. He was not in this... He was not in a position where he could commune with him. The Father had basically turned away his face from him so he didn't have to look at the sin that he was bearing on that cross for us. And that's the reason the father abandoned the son. He can't look at sin. He can't bear sin. Uh, He was there to provide the solution to it. The provisions of Christ's work reconciled to God. Romans 5.10 Somebody read Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you realize that before you came to Christ, you weren't just lost, you were his enemy. While we were yet enemies of Christ. We don't, you know... If you've ever shared Christ with people, a lot of times you'll say, well, <clears throat> I'm not a bad person. You know, I, I do good things. And I've got neighbors that, that feel that way. You know, they're, they, I, From a human standpoint, they're good people. They keep their grass cut. Their house is painted. They wave whenever I go by. They'll, they'll talk to me and be nice. But... They're still lost. We were enemies. We were God's enemy until we were reconciled to him. What does it mean to be reconciled? To make right. Any other? I think it's up there. You can even read some of it if you want. Um, harmony, or bringing into agreement with. Um, let's see. We've got two people here that are private businessmen. Is there a time when you have to reconcile your books? Unfortunately, right? <laughs> what does it mean to reconcile your books? Everything has to match. 
Everything has to match. That's right. And if it doesn't, there, there are people in the government that really like to get after you for those things, I think, don't they? You have to reconcile. Things have to be made right. They have to be in harmony with one another. When Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, we were reconciled to God. We were brought back into relationship with him. We were brought back into harmony or bringing into agreement with him. For us, it means to have peace with God. Peace with God. Because we have now gone from being his enemy to being his adopted child. God has adopted us into his family through Christ. And we are part of God's family. Jesus Christ, he's the answer to all men's questions concerning salvation. There's no, there's no other name on heaven or earth by which a man must be saved other than Jesus Christ. He is the only, he's, he even said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And that's, uh, that's the bottom line. It's the only way that we're coming to salvation is through Jesus Christ. The motive for Christ's work, Christ giving himself to the point of death to save us demonstrates God's great love and mercy. I put on here Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It said, the Lord's loving kindness, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's comforting to know that every morning God's mercy is renewed. I can't spend it all. I can't use it all. And even though I haven't used all of today's mercy, tomorrow there'll be a new batch. <laughs> and the day after that, there'll be a new batch. His loving kindness towards us never ends. And he's constantly there renewing the mercies that are extended to us. It's God's love and his mercy extended to us. John 3.16, you know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The resolution and continuation of Christ's work. The power of the resurrection over death. Romans 1.4 says, Who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a resurrected Savior. Jesus died. He was buried. But it didn't end there. He didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected. He raised from the dead to get victory over death and hell. Other religions in the world, all the other religions of the world, whoever they follow has died and been buried and is still dead and is still buried has never come back to life, has never been resurrected. We serve a living Savior. We don't serve a dead Savior. So we don't want to leave him on the cross, as some religions do, and we don't want to leave him in the grave because he wasn't there. And he was resurrected, and he gave us victory over death. 
the necessity of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 12. This is a fairly long passage, but it's a good one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then I was I or they, so we preach, and so we believed, Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? (coughs) There was a lot of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. If if you read the the accounts, um, let's see, it would have been the account in Matthew of after Jesus' resurrection, uh, the Pharisees, have a problem on their hands. They had him crucified, and now all of a sudden there's this word out, and the word for them came from the guards, because when the earthquake came and the angels appeared, these Roman guards ended up flat on their face, out cold. Uh, They didn't just get scared, they fainted. And they came back, you know, what are we going to do? We have to come up with a plan. So they paid him off, gave him all a bribe to lie about what happened, that the disciples came while they were sleeping at night and stole his body out of the tomb. Now think about that for a second. (laughs) Here's these fishermen or whatever they were, the disciples, and you've got trained Roman guards who, by the way, if that happened would have automatically been killed, put to death because of their uh, ineptness, and they're spreading this word. So to prove that Jesus really did, God had him had him to uh, meet with the disciples, and he met with large crowds, and they all saw him after he was resurrected. He was alive. He was well. He was. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Christ is the first fruits of all who look forward to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who, who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As for in Adam all died, also in Christ all are made alive. In the Old Testament, back to 
Leviticus, when they were setting up the sacrifices, there was going to be a sacrifice of the first fruits. You would bring the first of the of the harvest with the and they would sacrifice that because they felt it would give them a better harvest. It was it was looking forward to an abundant harvest coming. Jesus is the first fruit of all those who were resurrected. He was resurrected, so we have the promise that when we die, we will be resurrected. This body will die, but my spirit's going to go directly to be in his presence. And one day it is coming, he's going to give us a heavenly body that we're going to be able to spend eternity in. A body that no longer is exposed to sin, it's no longer exposed to corruption, it's not going to get sick, it's not going to need glasses, it's not going to limp, it's not going to do any of the things that our body does today. It's going to be a perfect body that's fit to be in the presence of a holy God. Christ Christ has become our intercessor and our mediator. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that Jesus, when he ascended on high, sat at God's right hand. And what's he do there? Is he just sitting there passing time? Making intercession. Who's he interceding interceding for? For us. Satan's still making accusations against us, and Jesus is there as our intercessor, as the defender, and he is basically telling the Father, I don't care what he said, this is what I've done, and I purchased them. They are ours. They're mine. And Jesus said, I'll never lose any of those that the Father has given to me. They are mine. I paid for them, and I'm not going to ever let them go. That's, that's a great... Um, that's a great joy to know. He's, he's our intercessor and he's our mediator. He mediates between us and God. And our prayers get translated there for us by him. It's a great, great thought. You know, and I thought about that after I read that. And you think, we prayed this morning. Jeff, you prayed in, in the, the pastoral prayer this morning. I don't know how many Christian, how many churches there are in the world that would have been meeting this morning, Christian churches. All of those prayers from there are going at the same time to the throne of grace. God hears and answers every one of them. Now, I, I can't comprehend how that happens. I have trouble listening to my wife. I don't know how I would listen to that many people. But he does. He hears and he answers and he knows and he understands because he's God. And he has paid a tremendous price that we might have life, that we might have that life abundant if we know him as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight. We thank you for what Christ did for us, the price that he paid on Calvary. It's incomprehensible. There's no way, Father, that we could ever truly understand the price that he paid. Help us, Father, to get so close to the cross that we see every bit of what took place. That we can begin to understand how much he loved us, how much he cared, 
so much that he gave up his life completely and he suffered tremendously that we might have life. We thank you and we rejoice in it. Bless us as we go our ways tonight. Uh, Just help us, Father, this week to walk in the light of your word. We'll praise you for all you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen.